Let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles uh, this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 12, covering verses 22 to verse 37. Let's uh, open in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this church. I thank you for the people that have gathered this morning. Lord, we're here, Lord, to hear from you, uh, to open your precious word, that your spirit, Lord, would speak your truth into our hearts, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, in our love for you, and our love for one another. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I titled this morning's message, The Unpardonable Sin. It's actually a a term that we find in Scripture that has raised some questions in people's mind, uh, Christians' minds through there. What is the unpardonable sin? What kind of sin... Could somebody commit that God would not forgive? But we have entered into this section of Matthew's gospel that I've been referring to as the time of opposition. Jesus' ministry started out with popularity and fame. As he went from town to town and city to city up in the region of Galilee there, And the people from all around were coming out and Jesus was touching many and healing many. But we also continue to read that the Pharisees began to take notice of his fame. They they were becoming more and more hostile even towards our Lord as they saw his fame and the people that were following after him uh, they, uh, I believe they felt threatened. They also struggled over the statements that Jesus made that he proclaimed to be God, that he proclaimed to be the coming Messiah. And that troubled them greatly. But there were many people besides the Pharisees that also struggled with the identity of Jesus. You see, Jesus was born he, uh, in this city of Nazareth, a, a town that was undesirable. It was on the, the wrong side of town, we could say. He was the son of a carpenter. He, he, he looked like everybody else, and people struggled with that to think that the coming one could be Jesus Christ. They saw his miracles. They saw the things that he was doing. But it still was a question mark to many. Could this be the one? Starting back in chapter 9, Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees as to why John's disciples fasted often and his disciples didn't fast. You see, the Pharisees began to look for ways to trap Jesus. This was now becoming the time of opposition. This opposition against the Lord was increasing and intensifying. In chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples as he sent them out into the cities and the towns to take the message out. He said, the message that you go out with, it's going to bring division. Division in the family, it's going to bring persecution upon you as you go out and you proclaim it. In chapter 11, John the Baptist, who had been in prison now for a long period of time, possibly up to a year, he was also beginning to struggle. His faith was beginning to wane because the the coming one, the one he was looking for, the one he was anticipating was going to set up his rule here on earth and that he was going to be himself even maybe delivered from the hand of Rome. But that didn't come. Persecution now was on the rise. 
We know also in chapter 11 that Jesus pronounced three woes upon three cities. He pronounced these woes because they saw the miracles that Jesus did. They they saw all of the signs that he was giving to them that he was in fact the Messiah. But they stood there in unbelief. And Jesus says, woe unto these cities. In chapter 12, the Pharisees accused Jesus of allowing his disciples to work on the Sabbath. And when Jesus challenged their interpretation of the law, we're told that this was enough for them that they began to plot on how they might destroy Jesus. It was intensifying. Jesus' popularity was now turning into one of opposition. Ultimately, this time of opposition was going to turn to a time of rebellion. It was going to turn to a time of rejection as Jesus made his way to the cross. The closer that he got to that day of the cross, the greater the opposition became. That brings us this morning to chapter 12, where Jesus once again is going to be confronted by these religious Pharisees. Look at your Bibles in verse 22. We read that then a man was brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed. He wasn't just demon-possessed, though. Look what it says. It says that he was blind and that he was also mute. And we're told that Jesus healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and he saw. Another miracle of Jesus. But what's interesting about this particular healing or deliverance is that very little is said about how Jesus performed it. Where we read a lot of the other miracles, things were said, what he, his dialogue with the person that he was healing and how he performed the miracle. This one, it doesn't say very little. It says very little about any conversation with the man at all or how he performed it. We're only told that he was brought by someone to Jesus. He was blind. He had to be moved along and helped along. And when Jesus saw him, this man that was demon-possessed, he healed him there right on the spot. Also, this is the only gospel, Matthew's gospel, that adds this to the storyline. The man was blind. The other gospels just say that he was possessed and mute. Matthew adds that he was also blind. We're also told that after Jesus had delivered and healed this man, that he was able to speak and he was able to see. It happened in a moment. Just as Jesus healed him, it was a complete healing, and it happened in a moment. Instant. A miracle of God. It appears that Matthew's intent in his writing of this gospel was not to focus so much upon the healing of this man, but he wanted to focus more on the dialogue that Jesus was going to have with these Pharisees after he healed the man. Look at your Bibles at verse 23. We're told that after Jesus healed the man, that all of the multitudes were amazed, and they said, could this be the son of David? Put yourself in that place. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And he's healed in a moment with possibly just the very word of the Lord's mouth. And they stood there 
in amazement. They were standing there in awe of what they just witnessed. They were amazed to see how Jesus was able to to perform this miracle, but even to have the power over darkness, over the evil that possessed this man. We can see that same thing in people today. Uh, Sometimes they witness something incredible about our Lord. They see your life, how it was changed by his power. And somehow, maybe they've even heard of somebody being healed or they witnessed somebody being healed. And there's people today, just like the Pharisees, who refuse to acknowledge that anything at all has happened in your life. They refuse to acknowledge that that God is even alive, that there's even real, that God is able to do this. They don't want to look at the facts. Do you know how powerful your testimony is to your loved ones, to your neighbors, to the people that you work? When they look at your life and they know something of you, and especially when they know of your past, what you are now, how powerful that is. And many times they want to deny those facts. But it's powerful. I remember years ago wanting to witness to my roommate, a guy that I lived with, and his girlfriend. They both belonged to a a cult. It was called the Way International. This Way International, they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. They denied that he was God in flesh. And I had such a desire for them to know the truth. I sat and I I filled up two pages worth of scriptures on the deity of Jesus Christ. Looking through my Bible, finding all the things that I could show to them. I thought, surely, if I could show them two pages worth of scripture, they said that they believed the Bible. That truly they would see that this is true, that Jesus was God in flesh. But in all of that effort and in all of those verses, when it was all done, they still didn't get it. They, they, they still couldn't see it. They refused to believe. It wasn't in their heart. You see, even miracles and signs for some people is not enough. Even a miracle, right in front of their eyes, it wasn't enough to help their unbelief. Remember the rich man in Lazarus, the rich man who was in torment. He was begging Abraham that he that that someone could be sent to his father's house and warn his five brothers. If someone would just go warn my five brothers, they would not have to come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets who will warn them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If you'll just raise someone, send them to them. If they raise from the dead, they'll repent. But Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. Isn't that incredible? Even when it comes to that, to raise somebody from the dead, you were dead and you're standing here, they still would not believe. You see, it comes down to the condition of a man or woman's heart. God is the only one that can reveal and open blinded eyes to see. You see, with these Pharisees, it was a heart issue. It was a heart that was bent on unbelief. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, 3, the Apostle Paul said this, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. A veil is something in front of their eyes. If it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see, the enemy, the God of this world, has a way of, through deception and lies to be able to put the blinders over people's eyes so that they can't see, they can't understand. And the only one that is unable to unveil those blinded eyes is Jesus himself. When were your eyes unveiled? How many years did you walk in disbelief and questioning? And then all of a sudden, on one day, on one occasion, those blinders were removed. And you came to faith in Jesus Christ. A miracle of God just happened in your life. It's incredible. We pray for our loved ones that have blinders over their eyes. We know that they are in unbelief. Our heart goes out to them and we say, God, unveil their eyes so that they might hear the gospel, that they might believe. Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 10, verse 8 said, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, Paul says you will be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Those two things. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness or that right standing with God. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've done this. You've confessed with your mouth the Lord and you've believed in your heart. Notice he didn't say you believe with your mind. You believe with your heart. Everything within you said, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is my only hope of salvation. And when you came to that place of confessing that before God, He saved you. That's what's happening here in our text this morning. These Pharisees that are bent on unbelief, they saw this miracle that Jesus just performed themselves. But then they began to take it a step further. Not only were they there in unbelief, but now they began to accuse him of doing this miracle by the power of Beelzebub. Even if one were to raise from the dead, they won't believe. This name Beelzebub, it's a Hebrew uh, word that literally means the Lord of the Flies. Kind of an ugly name. It's a name that is attributed to Satan himself. But it's also a name that was given to one of the Philistine gods. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 1. It was a Philistine god that was worshipped in the city of Ekron. Here are these Pharisees attributing this miracle that Jesus just performed to Beelzebub the Lord of the Flies, the work of Satan. Verse 23 says that after Jesus healed this man, the multitude standing by was amazed. They were in awe. This miracle brought them to the place then of asking this question in their own hearts. Could this be the son of David? David. 
They just saw a demon-possessed man delivered and healed. Could this be the son of David? It left them in awe, but it appears that there were also, there was a skepticism that was still there. They, they, they didn't say it with a definite statement. They wandered in their hearts and their minds. Could this be the son of David? They may have been thinking just like the Pharisees were. I'm not sure. I mean, look, this is, this is Jesus. He came out of Nash. I mean, he's, a, he's the son of a carpenter. Is he the one, really? But look what he just did. Look at this miracle that he just performed. He even cast out this demon from this man. Is this the son of David that we've been waiting for? This title, Son of David, was the equivalent of them saying, this could be the Messiah. This could be the coming one, the one that we've been waiting for. This miracle that they had just witnessed, it brought such amazement and wonder that they were thinking they were actually possibly standing in the presence of the Messiah. Matthew's gospel actually records eight different times throughout this gospel that this title, Son of David, was applied to the Lord. The first time that we saw it was in chapter 1, verse 1. It reads this way, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That was Matthew's way of starting out this genealogy to say that Jesus Christ is the coming Messiah. He did come through the loins of David, his kingship. And remember that the emphasis upon Matthew's gospel is Jesus as king. And he took it all the way back to Jesus coming through the line of David, King David. In chapter 9, verse 27, there were two blind men who were following Jesus, and they began crying out, saying to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. In chapter 15, verse 21, then Jesus went out from there and he departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region, and she cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. You see, this title that they were attributing to him was saying, You're the Messiah. You can deliver. You're able. In chapter 21... We read that when Jesus makes his triumphal entry down into Jerusalem, that day that they were going to call out him as king, the king of Israel, and they began to throw the branches down in front of him as he made his way down, and they began to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, was their words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then we read in verse 15, But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, it says they were indignant. For them to hear those words and calling Jesus the son of David was saying to all of them, Our Messiah has come. The king of Israel is here. And then the last time we see this title given to Jesus is in chapter 22, verse 41. We read that while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. You see, the Pharisees knew that that title was only to be held 
by God himself, the Messiah, the coming one. The healing of this man, it led to a contrast between the crowd that was standing there that day, seeing this miracle performed, and the Pharisees that were also standing there. And there's this big contrast. One's in amazement, and the others that were standing there had hearts that were bent on unbelief. Quite the contrast. Look at verse 25. But then it tells us, but Jesus knew their thoughts. Isn't that interesting? That he he actually knew what they were thinking. We see that in other places throughout the Gospels. You know that the Lord knows your thoughts, He knows your heart, He knows your thoughts. He knows the the things that you're thinking. He knows the condition of your heart. That in itself is scary, isn't it? And when you think about it, you go about your, your week and your day, and every, you know, the Lord knows what's inside you. He knows what's inside me, how I'm thinking. Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to these Pharisees, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. You see, this miracle that Matthew brings out is to bring out really the condition of these Pharisees. Jesus knew their thoughts, though. He knew their hearts. Apart from the story that's in front of us here, there's a lot of practical application that we could see in these words of of Jesus here. As you look at the world and our nation that we're living in here, the political condition of our nation, the division that's in our nation politically, when you think of even our city officials that run even the city of Winston-Salem or whatever city you live in. When you think of the relationships that are within the homes that are represented here, Jesus is saying that a kingdom, a city, a house cannot stand if it's divided. You see, even within our own homes... When there's division amongst husband and wife, when there's not unity there between the two of you, it's a struggle. It's hard. You see, Jesus here was dealing with the issues of their hearts, these Pharisees. Division in any setting will ultimately bring desolation. And that's what would happen in the the lives and the hearts of these Pharisees. Look at verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, Jesus says, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You see, Jesus is posing questions so that they would have to think. They would have to think through the things that they were saying and thinking in their hearts towards the Lord. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus once again puts these Pharisees into a dilemma. Uh, Look what he does. He says, if Satan is the power behind the miracle that I just performed, if Satan is behind this miracle, why would he want to cast out those who are of his own kingdom? Why would he be doing that? If Satan is behind my power in casting out this demon and healing this man, Why would Satan want to do that against his own kingdom? 
This was wisdom from above. This is the way the Lord approached these types of questions and the way that they would confront him. It's what the Lord wants to give you in those moments when you're witnessing and speaking to somebody. He gives you those words of wisdom from above. He gives you a word out of the scriptures that really just cuts right to the point. And that's what the Word of God does. We know that Hebrews 4.12, speaking about the Word of God, says this, that God's Word, it's living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. You hear that? That's, That's God's Word. It's the wisdom that we have from God right here in our hands. It's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It, It goes on to say that it's piercing, even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the morrows. In other words, every recess within a human being, the Word of God cuts. Just like a sword, it just gets right down to the nitty-gritty of a man's heart, his thought process. But it also tells us that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's God's Word. That's wisdom from God's Word. Jesus is challenging these Pharisees by saying it wouldn't make any sense for Satan to cast out Satan. That doesn't make sense. Back in chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 25, Jesus told his disciples these same words. He says that if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, this wasn't the first time, if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, speaking of himself, how much more will they call those of his household? Have you ever been ridiculed for your faith? Somebody said something against you for what you believe and stand for? Jesus says it's going to happen. If they said it of me, they will say it of you. Jesus goes on in verse 27. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub... By whom do your sons cast them out? He asked them a question now. Of, by whom do your sons cast out? You see, delivering people from demons was some, it was really actually a common practice of the day. There were others that sought to cast out demons. He says, but whom do your sons cast them out? And then he says, therefore, they shall be your judges. In a sense, Jesus is saying to them, suppose you're right in your assumption of me casting them out by Beelzebub. There are others who claim to do the same. And they're your sons. Now, sons in Scripture can refer to literal sons, but it can also refer to their pupils, those that were taught under them. He says, well, your sons cast them out. And so Jesus, in a sense, put them once again into a dilemma. Because uh, they would not have denied that any of their own sons were using the power of evil to cast out demons. So why would Jesus be using the, uh, the power of Satan to cast the demon out of this man? He put him into a predicament. And then he also says, your own sons prove that you're wrong. Therefore, they shall be your judges. Verse 28 says, but if I cast out demons, and look what he says, 
But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now Jesus changes it up, doesn't he? Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Luke's gospel reads of this same account. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, Jesus is saying that how he casts us out was by the power of God's spirit. The Spirit of God, the finger of God, is how this man was set free. The words, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, no one was disputing with Jesus that day. These Pharisees weren't disputing that the demon had been cast out. They witnessed it themselves. They were only questioning Jesus on that day, the source of his power. What is your source of your power that you have done this? We attribute it to Satan. Jesus says, it's by the Spirit of God that I did this. Jesus is saying his power came from the Spirit of God then you can know that the kingdom of God has come upon you or, your, or the kingdom of God is present with you. In other words, the Messiah was standing right there. He wasn't speaking about some future event, some kingdom that was yet to come. He was telling them that the kingdom of God is with you now. As I stand here with you, the Messiah, my kingdom is with you now. Those words were not setting well with these Pharisees. So Jesus once again stops their mouths by giving them an illustration with a question. Or how can... One enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. The strong man here, I believe, is Satan. In other words, how could someone enter a man's house and steal his goods from his house unless he first overcomes the strong man that's in that house? In other words, unless he first overcomes Satan. Then he will plunder the house. That's what would happen. The picture of this strong man, Satan, is being utterly defeated. When Jesus cast him out, he utterly defeated the works of Satan. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, I'm engaged in a spiritual battle when I cast that demon out of that man. I engaged within the Spirit, and I did it by the power of God. And then he tells them in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And so Jesus is really pointing back to them. Jesus tells them, in this battle, you are either with me, Or you're against me. You see, I've entered into this battle. I cast out this demon from this man by the power and the spirit of God. And you're either in this battle with me or you're against me. He really likens them just like a shepherd that is watching over the flock and that enemy, that that animal that comes in to scatter the flock. He says, if you're not gathering with me, then in effect you are scattering. Jesus is pointing the finger right at them. 
And then in verse 31, we see therefore. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be, will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Now, as we've gone through the context of what Jesus is saying here, do you see what this blasphemy against the Spirit is? Every sin that a person can commit, and even blasphemy itself, can be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Jesus says, Jesus is not saying that sin and blasphemy is not serious. You see, sin is very serious. Blasphemy is sin, and it is very serious against God. But even that can be forgiven. People say, well, you know, you said the Lord's name in vain. Is that, you know, no. People could say all kinds of things against our Lord, and it could be forgiven. Sin, as heinous as it is, any type of sin can be forgiven. Blasphemy can be forgiven. But what Jesus is saying here is that there's a sin that cannot be forgiven. The sin that cannot be forgiven is not any particular words. It's not some word that you say or something like that. The sin that he's talking about here has to do with the condition of the heart. It has to do with somebody that is setting themselves in unbelief. These Pharisees stood there with hearts that were set in unbelief. Even to the point where they were saying, Jesus, what you are doing, you're doing by the power of Satan. You cast out this, this demon by Beelzebub. You, they attributed the works of his hands to the work of evil, to the work of Satan himself. Jesus is warning them, there's a condition of man's heart that you can come to, that you would come to that place where it doesn't matter what you put in front of my face, I won't believe. Even if you were to raise from the dead, I won't believe. And the condition of a person's heart can grow to such, be so degraded that they themselves will not believe anything. I mean, they're, they're set in their conviction. That's what Jesus is warning about here. When a person takes the position like these Pharisees, they've set themselves in a state that actually prevents forgiveness. They, they've set themselves in a place where they prevent forgiveness. You see, a person has to willfully come before God and acknowledge their sin and say, I have a need of a Savior. And if a heart hardens to the point where it begins to attribute the things of God to the work of Satan, and there's no more calling upon I mean, they put themselves in, they prevent that forgiveness that the Lord wants to offer. It's not that God refuses to forgive. It's because the person who sees good as evil and evil as good. You see, that's what they were doing. That's what these Pharisees were doing in light of this miraculous miracle that was just performed. Evil is good and good is evil. Sounds like a lot of the heart condition of people today, the days we're living in. It's this heart condition that keeps and kept them from turning to God in repentance. 
to call good evil and to attribute his miracles to Satan is a sin that Jesus says will not be forgiven. Ultimately, I believe what we're talking about here is the sin of unbelief. It's a heart that has grown so hard, a heart that is unable to repent. Think of that. A heart that is unable to repent or seek forgiveness. That's the unpardonable sin. They no longer, this kind of heart is no longer affected because of the sin of unbelief. There's no, there's no, there's, there's nothing there. And when God stops drawing by his Holy Spirit, there is no hope. Jesus goes on and we'll finish with this. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And so the sin of attributing the works of God to Satan speaks of that heart condition, that heart of unbelief that has set itself in unbelief, an unwillingness to acknowledge its sin, an unwillingness to turn and say, that miracle just proved to me you are, in fact, the Son of of God. You are the Messiah. But in their hard heart, they chose to attribute as plain and as blatant as this miracle was to their eyes, they chose to attribute his works to Satan. That is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. People often spoke about against Jesus. We see that all the way through the New Testament. Some of you can remember the days when maybe you spoke against the Lord. Maybe you had words that spoke against him. And maybe you even used foul language against the Lord. You cursed at him. You said things about him to other people. In a sense, you blasphemed his name. And God forgave you. He still poured out his love and his forgiveness and he just, he poured it out to you and he forgave you. And you're a child of God now and he forgave you. You didn't commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You see, the Lord wants to forgive. He's not willing that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance. It's just that heart that simply refuses to turn that God can't forgive. All other sin, anything we've ever committed in life falls under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's what this communion table was about this morning. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is another matter. Jesus says it's inexcusable in a sense. It can't be forgiven. Jesus warned that it was a heart set on unbelief that it could do nothing else but attribute this miracle to the work of Satan. That's all it could do. And for that, Jesus says, that's unforgivable. I was listening to the radio. Maybe some of you 
heard this uh, the other day on, on K-Love. But I was, uh, it was out of Isaiah 43, and Kathy and myself were driving. We heard this, and I thought, you know what? What a great bunch of verses that just bring a lot of hope and comfort. In Isaiah 43, we read, For now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba in your place. Since you were, you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Bring out the blind people who have eyes, and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled, who among them can declare this and show us us former things. Let them bring out their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God formed, nor shall there be any after me. We have a heavenly father that cares for us in a a greater way than you could ever even imagine. Know that as you go about your week, and you, in a sense, feel like you're walking through the fire or you're going through your trials and difficulties, know that your Heavenly Father holds you and keeps you and cares for you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior.